Hi, my name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Let me begin by asking you this question. Do you like large crowds? Do you like to be in large crowds? Uh, A record crowd of 350,000 people gathered for the Indianapolis 500th anniversary back in 2004. And when I saw the statistic, I thought to myself, I wonder if Mike Carlson was there. Because <laughs> I know he likes racing, and I don't know much about racing, but uh, that might be where he was on two, in 2004. And some of y'all are going to really like this one, but in 2016, we had the biggest college football game ever attended. It was when Tennessee beat Virginia Tech. There was 156,000 fans uh, there for that, uh, for that event. Sorry, Kent, you know... Uh, <laughs> So uh, 3.5 million people attended the largest ever rock concert in 1994, and the largest religious gathering was in 2010, and it was the, I don't know how to pronounce it right, Kumela in Haridwar, India, some kind of gathering of Hindus. They believe 60 to 80 million people were gathered for that religious event. Now, throughout the ministry of Jesus, he gathered crowds as well. In fact, to the, to the casual observer, we might think that everybody in that crowd uh, was the same, but they weren't. They were different, and Jesus knew the difference. So there was the crowd, and then in the crowd, there was the committed, and then among the committed were the ones that he would call out to be leaders. Uh, he knew some of these people liked hearing him. He knew that some of these people liked following him or were following him, and he knew some of them would actually be called out to even lead others. Jesus knew that some people were just hanging around while others were all in. He knew all of that. The crowd never impressed Jesus. He was never impressed by the crowd. In fact, uh, it didn't make him feel any better about his ministry. I think a lot of times in our American Western culture, you know, uh, the bigger the crowd, the better your ministry. Or the bigger the crowd, the, you know, the better you are or whatever you do. But that's not how Jesus felt. He was never interested in building a crowd. As a matter of fact, if you think about it, he was always trying to minimize the crowd. He was always telling people when he did these marvelous, miraculous things, he would say, please don't tell anybody what's happened to you. And the reason for that was, I believe he was trying to minimize the crowd. What Jesus wanted was not a crowd, but he wanted disciples. He wanted people to trust him and to follow him. He wanted people to... uh, he wanted people to know him for who he, he is and was and is, okay? So this morning in our study of Mark, we're going to look at these three groups of people. Jesus attracted a crowd. He would call his disciples out of the crowd even, and then he would appoint leaders. So we're going to look at those three groups, and then we're going to look at some present-day application from those three groups. So let's start with Jesus attracts a crowd. We're at chapter 3, verse 7 in our study. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea, Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. Now, scholars believe that this crowd was maybe larger than 10,000 people. I must confess that I didn't follow the 
the train of thought to figure out how they came to that number, but they believe it was a huge crowd. They came to see Jesus. They came to hear Jesus. They actually came to meet Jesus if they could. They came from as far or as close as five miles away. They came from as far as 80 miles, which 80 miles might not seem much to us today, but that was days of walking. There was no train. There were no buses. There, there were no cars in those days. They came from Gentile areas as well as Jewish areas. Though most everybody believes that the people that came were all Jewish. In other words, Jesus isn't at this point attracting Gentile people to his ministry in any kind of, in any kind of number. Although I imagine Gentiles who lived in vicinities or areas might have come if they heard the things that Jesus was doing. But most people believe these were Jews that had been dispersed into these, into these uh, Gentile areas. The big thing Mark is describing, lots of people in crowds, this wasn't very positive. For us, it'd be positive, right? But in this particular situation, it's not positive. It's not positive for a couple of reasons. One is that how do you feed a big crowd? When you get thousands of people and there's no food lions or Kroger's down the road, there's no restaurants, how do you feed so many people? But there was another issue also, and that was that crowds were, were very, um, they were a very negative thing for those in power and those in authority. For the Romans and for the Jews, a crowd meant the possibility of unrest. We all know in the last few years, we've seen how crowds can easily be whipped into frenzies of violence and rebellion against authority. And that's what they were afraid of. So Rome was uneasy with crowds and so was, so was the Jewish leadership. Verse eight, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and they cried, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. So what drew the crowd? Jesus says, or the Bible says, Mark says, what drew the crowd was that they came to see and experience for themselves what they had heard about Jesus. And what they had heard about Jesus was fantastical. They had heard that he would heal the leper. He would actually touch the leper and then heal the leper. He would take a man whose arm was all shriveled up and he would make it stretch out and be normal again. And so they came to see that. On top of that, we need to remember that there wasn't much entertainment in that day. There weren't movies, there, there weren't sports activities, there, there just wasn't this plethora of entertainment that we have satiated ourselves with. There, there wasn't that for them, and so people needed entertainment. So this was entertainment in a way for them. Others came because they needed help, and the power of desperation will always draw a crowd, right? When people are desperate and they hear that there's some help somewhere, that's going to draw a crowd. Can, uh, Jesus told his disciples to have a boat ready because he said, these desperately ill people are pressing in me and I'm afraid I'm going to be crushed. Even Jesus understood the power of a crushing crowd. Just a few weeks ago, it was 125 people were killed in Indonesia. 125, I believe it was, in Indonesia when a football game got out of hand and people crushed the, the exits and they crushed 125 people under their, under their feet as they tried to get out. They died. And, and so Jesus says, hey, I'm not going to let that happen to me. Let's have a boat. So if I get pushed into the water, we can get in a boat. We can, we can avoid this. So even Jesus is aware of how crowds can, can be crushing 
The crowd was there to get something from Jesus, a spectacle in some cases, but in other cases, they actually wanted help. Desperately, desperate people, sick and ill people, I mean, they're, they're holding on to any hope. And when they hear that Jesus has healed the leper, which no one would do, right, they are desperate. They believe, hey, these, maybe this guy can heal me. And desperate folks, oppressed not just by physical ailments, but by spiritual forces of darkness. I mean, they've come there as well. It says in the text that when an evil spirit would see Jesus, he'd call him by name and Jesus would say to the, he would actually submit to him falling down before him. And Jesus would say, don't tell anybody who I am. Now, I'm not faulting the crowd, and we shouldn't, none of us should fault the crowd. When I'm intrigued by something that's fantastic, right, I'm going to, I want to go find, I want to pursue it. So we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be against the crowd or faulting them, and especially the desperate. When you're desperate, you're going to go to where you think you might find help. And, but Jesus understood the crowd. He understood the crowd, and uh, he knew that they were there for what they could get, and he wasn't upset about that. He was offering it. But he knew that the crowd was there for what they could get. And it really wasn't necessarily about him. Let's think about this for just a moment. Ian came through, uh, was it uh, Sanibel, the island of Sanibel? And it just wiped out, right? So let's pretend we're survivors on, on uh, Sanibel Island. And we're on one side of the island. I don't think it's very big from what I understand. But on the other side, we hear that people have showed up with relief, water and food and all the rest. We're going to all go to the other side of the island to get what we need but we really could care. We're, we're, we might be thankful, but we're really not into the people that are bringing it. We're there for what they're giving to us, the relief that we need. And in the same way, it's really easy for desperate people to come to get help, but really not have any concern about who's giving them the help. They just want the help. In John 2.23, we read, while Jesus was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name. And when they, saw the, when they saw the signs he was doing, Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them. He wouldn't entrust himself to the crowd since he knew them all. And because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. It takes more than being a part of the crowd for Jesus to entrust himself to us. That's what, that's what the text is saying to us, all right? Did you know it's possible today to still be in the crowd and come no further? Still, it's still possible today to be in the crowd, to be, be drawn by... People come to church or people want to find out about Jesus because they've, they've heard about him. They, hey, we divide history by Jesus. Who is this Jesus? I need to know more about him. People, want, people join the crowd because they want to know who is this that so affected our world. The whole Western Civ is built on Jesus. So why, you know, why would... I need to know about him. And desperate people... People, when there's no medicine left, there's no, nothing a doctor can eat. So, I mean, he says, hey, I'm sorry. We've done all that we can do. And people are just desperate. And so they come to Jesus looking for, for help. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing. Many people come to Jesus because they first come to the crowd. But I want to tell you something. Jesus wants you in a different place than just the crowd. So let's look at the next group of people. The next group of people are his disciples. Jesus calls his disciples. He calls them out of the crowd. So in verse 13, it says, Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. 
Now, this is what we call one of the biographies of Jesus, the first four books of the New Testament. And in other biographies, the other three, we learn something about this account, and that is that who Jesus calls up on the mountain with him are his disciples. He's calling his disciples out of the crowd to join him up on on the mountain. The disciples are mixed into the crowd, but they're different than the crowd. The disciple wasn't someone who was there for what he could get from Jesus. The disciple was there because he wanted to be with Jesus. Not because of what he could get from him, but what he might learn from him. He wanted to be near him. He wanted to be like him personally. He was following Jesus because of who Jesus was and what he might learn from him. A disciple was a learner. A disciple was a pupil. A disciple was a follower. And so when Jesus departed the earth, listen to me, when Jesus departed the earth, he left a commission to his disciples at the end of Matthew. And it's, it's one of our favorites, right, as, as believers. He said, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And so Jesus wants us to make disciples because that's what he always desires, our disciples, followers, people who want to be with him. I think there's some confusion today. Now listen carefully to what I'm gonna say. I think there's some confusion today. We tend to think and act like Jesus, all he really wants is for you to make a decision for Jesus that you believe something about him. That, that Jesus just wants a fan, right? He just wants people in the crowd. Jesus doesn't just want people in the crowd. Listen, again, Jesus isn't against the crowd. He loves the crowd. He's inviting people to be a part of the crowd. He's actually saying, come to the crowd. I have something. I'm going to heal you in this particular, in this particular time. He's saying, I'm going to heal you. I'm going to te- come, to the, come to the crowd. Come see what God is doing through me. But he doesn't want people to stay in the crowd. He wants people to move beyond beyond the crowd, and he wants them to be disciples. He's constantly seeking and asking people to come out of the crowd and to be his follower, to be his disciple. So here's just a, here's just a, a smattering from the New Testament. And it's, just, it's, it's, all throughout, it's all throughout these four biographies, but it's all throughout the New Testament. Here's Matthew 4.19. Jesus said to John, Andrew, James, and, and, uh, and Peter, follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. The next day he would find Philip and he would say to Philip, Philip, come and follow me. The rich guy in Matthew 19, 21 comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to have this eternal life that you're talking about? And Jesus said, sell everything you have and come and follow me. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Matthew 8, 22, Jesus said, follow me and leave the dead to bury their dead. That's in response to a guy who said, hey, let me go bury my father first and then I'll come and follow you. And Jesus said, no, come and follow me now. John 12, 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the father will honor him. Jesus is calling you and me out of the crowd to be his disciple to follow him up close and personal. Now, why? notice why Jesus wants people to follow him, to be his disciple. Because it says in the text, he called them up on the mountain whom he desired. And here's a really neat thing, guys. Jesus desires you and me to be his disciples, to be with him. That's cool, isn't it? Jesus really wants you and me to be with him all the time. In John 14, 3 Jesus is talking to these 12 in particular 
that we're talking about today. He's talking to these 12 and a few more, but he says to them, I'm going to prepare a place for you that when I come again, you may be with me. I want you to be with me. Now, this is a really stupid illustration, and I've, and I've debated in my head whether to even use it or not, but I'm going to, because I thought about it at the time. So I'm thinking of the Shrek movie. Y'all remember the Shrek movie? Those of you that saw Shrek, if you didn't see Shrek, just hang on. I'll, I'll be finished with this illustration in a second. But, you know, uh, Farquaad, the king, has forced all the fairy tale creatures into Shrek's swamp. He's going to go and talk to Farquaad, right? But he doesn't know where Farquaad lives. And so he says, he says, who can tell me where Farquaad lives? And Donkey starts jumping up and down. He says, oh, I can, I can. And he says, is there anyone else? And Donkey's jumping up in the back. Pick me, pick me. And Shrek's just looking around. And finally Shrek says, all right, Donkey, come with me. Shrek was reluctant to take Donkey. But here's the thought I had. God isn't reluctant to take you as his disciple. I know, stupid illustration, isn't it? But I'm telling you, that's what I thought of at my desk. It was donkey jumping up and down saying, take me, and, and Shrek not wanting him. And God, on the other hand, is saying, be my disciple. Jesus said, be my disciple. And, and, and in the movie, if you go watch it, right, all these other people are trying to volunteer, and other people are keeping them from volunteering. Hey, guys, God wants you to be, Jesus wants you to be his disciple. He wants you to come after him, after him and be his disciple. Why? Here, here's, here's a couple of things that immediately came to mind. And this is good, not Shrek. John 5.40, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The reason why Jesus wants you with him and to be his disciple is because that's where you're going to find life. You're going to find life in Jesus. And Jesus said, you're going to find abundant life in me, and you're going to find eternal life in me. You're going to find abundant life. Jesus wants to give us the kind of life, I believe, that fills my heart, that gives me joy, that gives me peace. He he wants to give me a kind of life that all of us desire. And I'm not talking about everything going well. I'm talking about something in your soul that... You know, when um, I was having a conversation with someone earlier this morning, when, when Jesus asked Peter and his disciples, are you going to leave me too? And remember they said, man, where else, where else are we going to go? No one has the words of life like you do. In other words, Jesus wants to give us abundance. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. So, so there's this abundance in life now, but there's also, there's also this eternal life that we get to actually live forever. And I realize we're all going to die, but the Bible says, though we die, yet shall we live. We will rise again. We will rise. And I know that is so fantastical, but that is what Jesus promises us, that one day all the tombs will open and everyone who has put their faith in him is going to rise to live again forever and ever and never die again. And that, my, my friends, is why Jesus wants you to be with him because he wants you to have eternal life with him and be with him. And here's another one that came to mind. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come be with me because I want to give you rest. This kind of goes back to the abundance of life, doesn't it? But I want to give you rest. It, it's, it's Evan, I wrote it in my notes. You know, I can actually write in my, in my iPad and I wrote it in my notes. I want to give you Shalom. I want to give you this rest of your soul. I don't know if you've seen it yet, but remember a few weeks ago, Meredith sang for us, uh, God settle my unsettled heart. 
Well, Michael's fixed it and, it's, and I posted it online. You should watch it. You should watch it every day for a while. But in that song, she sings, God, settle my unsettled soul. And that's what he wants to do. Being with Jesus, he or Kelly did it. I just saw Michael pointing at Kelly. So anyway, it, it, is, it, is, it is what Jesus, why he wants you to be his disciple, because he wants to settle your soul and give you rest. I ask you again, be honest with yourself. This is just between you and God. Jesus knows the crowd and Jesus knows his disciples. And here's my question. Are you still just in the crowd or are you a disciple? And please just be honest with yourself. That's all that matters. Are you in the crowd or are you really a disciple of Jesus? Number three, the third group here, Jesus appoints his leaders, verse 14. And he appointed the 12 whom he had named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. We don't know how many disciples came up on the mountain with him. Presumably, I guess, everyone who heard his voice that was a disciple came up on the mountain with him. Maybe there was hundreds. Remember, if there was 10,000 people in the crowd, maybe there's hundreds of disciples sleeping up on the mountain Waiting on Jesus. Maybe hundreds of men and women have gone up there uh, to hear his, you know, to hear him or whatever come to him. Luke tells us, Mark does not. Luke tells us that that night, Jesus spends the whole night praying. And in the morning, he gets all those disciples together and he announces that he is appointing a leadership team of 12 men. They would appropriately be called his apostles. The word apostle means sent one because he was going to literally send them. There are three lists of these men's names. And Mark has one of them. Let's read it. Verse 16, he appointed the 12. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, the son of Zebedee. And John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, that's my Italian pronunciation of some Hebrew word, but that is, uh, that is sons of thunder, probably called that because of their uh, impetuousness or their given to anger, wanting to call down fire on people to kill them. Andrew, who would have been Peter's brother, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Not all three of these lists agree. They have different names. We don't necessarily, we know that that doesn't mean different people. What it means is some of these guys were known by different names. For instance, Matthew is also known by Levi, depending on on what gospel you read it in. So um, they had different names. But this is the list of the men that he comes down the mountain after praying all night, and he appoints these men. And and he gives them three specific demarcations from all of his other uh, disciples. Let's see what they are. The first one is this, they're to be with him. Wait a minute, Jimmy, you just said a disciple is somebody who's with Jesus or following Jesus. Yes, but what, what Jesus gives these 12 men is unlimited access to his personhood for the next two or three years. In other words, wherever Jesus went, they were going to be with Jesus. We've heard of people following celebrities, right? You've heard of that, right? They, from wherever celebrity goes from this city to this city, people follow them around. Well, these guys are not, they're with Jesus 24-7 unless he's sending them out. And he's giving them access to himself that others aren't going to have. So they're going to travel with him. They're going to live with him. They're going to eat with him. And they're going to be a support team. In fact, I was, I was listening to one commentator talk about how most likely they were the folks who helped manage Jesus in these huge crowds. 
Second, here's the second thing that Jesus said of these 12. They would go out and preach. Later, Jesus would send 70 disciples out to preach. But right now, he's starting with these 12, and he's calling them apostles, and he said, you're going to go out and preach, and they're going to preach the good news of the kingdom. They're going to go out and tell everybody, the kingdom of God has come. The king is here. We're representing him, and he's asking you to be a part of his kingdom. As the enterprise of the kingdom grew, Jesus knew that he'd need leadership. He knew it, and so these are, this, is the lead, this is his first tier of leadership as, he, as the kingdom begins to grow. Now, the third uh, thing that Jesus did for these 12 men is, different from his other disciples, was that he gave them authority, and I'm going to add the word power, sent them out, verse 14, to preach and have authority to cast out demons, verse 15. He gave them authority in the spiritual realm and in the physical realm. These guys could cast out demons, whatever that looked like. However that was, they could recognize it. They could do it. They had authority to heal in the physical realm. They could say, be healed, and and they were healed. Jesus gave them that authority. But he also, I want to suggest, gave them power. A policeman has the authority of the state. The state says, you're acting on my behalf, and so therefore you can arrest people. You can ask people to stop. You can, there's all kinds of things you can do as a policeman with that authority, right? Well, where's the power behind the authority? Well, the power is uh, that gun on the side of the police officer's you know, side. That's his power. He has authority from the state, and he has a gun for power, which I don't understand how the, the police in, in England work without guns, but anyway, he has the power. Jesus gives these guys a power, They have power to enact their authority. So when they say, be healed, or when they say to the Spirit, come out of him, the Holy Spirit is the power they have, and and they're able to actually, I mean, this Holy Spirit enforces with power their authority. So here's what Matthew says, Jesus said to the 12 right after this. So just listen, I I forgot even write the chapter down, but... um, Jesus said, uh, sent out these 12 after giving them instructions. Don't take the road that leads to the Gentiles. Don't enter any Samaritan town. Instead, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As you go, proclaim the kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with leprosy, drive out demons, freely receive, freely give. Don't acquire gold, silver, or copper for your money belts. Don't take a traveling bag for the road, an extra shirt, sandal, or staff, for the worker is worthy of his food. When you enter a village or town, find who's worthy, stay there with them until you leave. Greet the household when you enter it, and if the household is worthy, let your peace be on it. But if unworthy, let your peace return to you. And then truly, I tell you, you'll be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for those who reject you. Now, he goes on to say more, but these things I think right here are directed towards this sending out of these 12 men. This is, these were the things he said to them. You're not to use this authority and power to get rich, okay? You're to go out and you freely have given, been given this. You go out and freely do for others. Now, the final verses, the final verses are 20 and 21, when he went home and the crowd gathered again, and they would not even, uh, then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. So folks, there's always going to be a crowd peering in. There always will be. The crowds will always be there. People wanting to know, right? And, uh, and so Jesus, he gets home and the crowd's there again. But what I want you to notice this, if you decide to follow Jesus and be a disciple, right, or be one of his leaders, as we'll see in just a moment, if that's the case, know this, your family may not approve. 
And not only may your family not approve, your family may stand against you. And you know what? We may become, when I say we, the people of the family of God may become closer to you than your blood relatives because your blood relatives may reject you. Not even everybody in the crowd may go along with you if you become part of the committed. All right, I'm almost finished, but now I get to the part where I want to share with you or talk with you about, I want to talk with you about how does this apply to our life today. So I've got three applications for each one of the points, the crowd, the committed, and the leaders. So let's, let's look at the application. So the first one is this. It's okay to be part of the crowd at first. It's okay that you may have come to check out Jesus. After all, that's, that's what, you know, people, people come to check him out because he changed the world. But here's my application. At some point, you have to decide if Jesus is going to be a spectacle to you or whether he's going to be your king. Whether he's going to be somebody you're just coming to check out or someone to look at or someone to be a fan of or whether you're actually going to become part of his committed disciples. And this is true. To not receive Jesus as king is to remain part of the crowd. The default is to remain in the crowd. You have to make a decision to move from the crowd to the committed. So in John, he writes this, 1 John 1.12, but as many as received him, he gave the right to become the children of God. To those who received him, how? Received him as their king. He gave the right to become the children of God. And so for the third time this morning, for the third time, I want to ask you again, like, are you merely part of the crowd? Or are you looking at Jesus from a distance? Or hanging Jesus on your, on your belt like a, what do you call those, rabbit foots, right? Like, I mean, I've got Jesus just in case something goes bad, right? I mean, are you part of the crowd just looking at Jesus and admiring him from a distance, or are you one of those people who said, no, no, I'm, I'm going to move from the crowd. I want to be his disciple. I want to follow him. I, I want to be with him. I want to be like him. So that's my first point of application. Are you still in the crowd? If you are, it's a great place to begin, but you've got to move from the crowd to the committed. That brings me to, that brings me to the second application, the committed, the disciple. You know, if you're claiming to be a disciple... Remember this, what is it about a disciple? Jesus says they're the ones that are following him. They're the ones that want to be with him, right? So here's my application to you. Are you following him? Do you want to be near him? Are you striving to be near him and, and be with him? We, we can't follow Jesus physically anymore. You know, in some ways it was, it was sort of maybe a little bit easier then. I mean, you could see Jesus, talk to him, hear him with your physical, audible senses. You could... Uh, you could yeah, it was just different, right? So we can't physically be with Jesus anymore, but I do believe we can still follow him. So let me tell you, let me give you three ways that if you're going to be a disciple, I really believe you need to follow him this way. The first one is this. You need to be near him spiritually. We talked a lot about this a few weeks ago. I can't be near him physically, but I can be near him in my heart. I can be near him spiritually uh, in my inner man. I can invest part of my day to be with Jesus heart to heart, right? I can spend time with him. And a couple of weeks ago, we saw how that's what Jesus does every day. Every day he pulls away and, well, it seems like, I remember I tried to make a case it was every morning, but I couldn't. But it seems like every day anyway, Jesus is pulling aside to, to get with God. And remember, he's a physical being at this point. The Father's a spiritual being. He's pulling aside to spiritually meet with God the Father every day. And I'm telling you guys, that's what we need to do if we're going to follow Jesus. 
We need to pull aside spiritually and be near him spiritually. So grab your Bibles every day. I suggest it's every day. Grab your Bible. Hear from him. Talk to him. Try to listen to his voice in your heart. Try to listen to him speak to you through his scriptures. Hear what God is saying. Now the second way to follow him is to learn from him. So, so be drawn near him and then learn from him. Be a learner. Focus on reading the biographies in the, the first four books of the New Testament. And then move to the other books which help understand the biographies. You know, see what Jesus is doing. Understand it. Let him tell you. Let, let him show you how he wants you to be. Get your worldview from Jesus. Get your view of what's right and wrong, what's more. Listen, our culture, our culture is standing in opposition to what Jesus and and the Bible says as to what's morally right. Learn from Jesus. Don't get your right and wrong from culture. Get your right and wrong from Jesus. Now, anyway, I've said enough there. And the third thing is we follow him. Okay, so we follow him by drawing near to him spiritually. We follow him by learning from him. And third, we follow him by doing what we're learning. There seems to be such a disconnect in our Western church between 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 following Jesus, between what Jesus says and our actually doing it. We, we've, we, and listen, this is, I'm not pointing fingers at everyone else. I'm talking about us, us in this room even. It's really easy to draw a disconnect between what Jesus says is right and how we should be and what it means to follow him and then what we actually do. So we know what God says about sexual morality But I'm telling you, the church is just living very opposite of that. We know what God says about greed and riches, but we live in opposition to that. We know what God says about the poor, about about the aliens, about all kinds of things, but we seem to distance ourselves or disconnect ourselves from those things. We know what God says about patience and kindness, and we have anger issues or we're harsh, and we chalk it up to, well, that's just the way I am. No, folks, listen, we need to be changing. We need to be becoming like Jesus, right? That's what it means to be a disciple. So my application for you this morning is, and Chris, I just saw you, and that's what you were talking about in Sunday school class this morning, about all the commands of Jesus that he's given us, the things that he desires of us. Hey, we as a disciple, I need to be doing those things. Implicit in the command to teach his disciples is to observe They are to do, they are to live. So this morning, if I can, if you are a disciple of Jesus, if I can bump you off an an apathy towards spending time with God, if I can just bump you off that a little bit, if I can nudge you in the direction of wanting to learn from Jesus and stop taking your cues from culture, but learn from, from Jesus and from what he told us, and yeah, so a lot of people tell us, well, Jesus didn't say anything about this, didn't say anything about abortion, didn't say anything about homosexuality. Yeah, absolutely. He may not have mentioned those topics personally, but that doesn't mean that what Jesus said doesn't speak in to those cultural issues that are so real for us today. And so you need to, you need to figure out what is it that Jesus is teaching and then do it. So I can nudge you in the direction of wanting to be a learner. That's what I want to do. And if I can prod us into greater obedience, and this isn't just for everyone else, this is for Jimmy, and this is for you all. If I can prod us into greater obedience to Jesus, that's my goal. And then the third point, my third application is this. God has chosen some of you 
and is seeking to appoint some of you as leaders in his kingdom work. God has chosen some of you. He's gifted you and he's called you to be leaders. When Jesus returned to heaven, Paul wrote this. He said, Jesus gave himself, gave some to the church, to God's people, to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, growing into maturity uh, with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. God has, God has called some of you and gifted you to be leaders In the book of Romans, Paul says, talking about spiritual gifts, there's a gift of leadership so that you can lead with diligence. Now listen to what I'm going to say right now. I I have found in my years of of walking with Jesus and being a pastor, I have found that there there are sometimes people who think God has called them to be leaders but the rest of us recognize that that's not the case, right? Their, Their gifts don't lie there. There's just, there's issues there. But I want to tell you something. That that isn't what I've mostly found. What I've mostly found is that people don't want to be leaders in the body of Christ. They don't want to be leaders because with leadership comes greater responsibility. With leadership comes a greater time commitment. With leadership comes more work. Leadership carries, puts you in a place of being attacked. Because when people don't agree with what you're trying to do as a leader, they attack you. And by the way, can I just chase a little rabbit here for just a second? Listen, folks, when we disagree with leaders, whether they be political leaders or religious leaders or our church family leaders, we we, we need to stick to the issues and not to personally trying to denigrate people we don't agree with. I mean, it's the weakest form of argument when you have to attack the person rather than dealing with whatever the issue is, right? So if we could just, if we could, if we could just learn that, that'd be awesome, right? But, but so I'm telling you folks, listen, what I have found is that leadership is hard and people, you know, people don't necessarily want to volunteer for that leadership, even though God may have called them, even though God may have gifted them. They don't want to do it because it's just, it's too hard. I've got too much on me right now. But Jesus, here's my application. Jesus is calling some of you disciples to be leaders. And I don't just mean in the pastoral or missionary realm, but I I would say that too. Maybe God is calling some of you to be pastors. Maybe God is calling some of you to be missionaries. I mean, God's already called some from our church family to go as missionaries and uh, so maybe God's calling some of you to go as well to that or to be pastors or maybe he is. But, but I'm telling you, there's so many other levels that we need leadership at if we're going to flourish and be the kind of church that God wants us to be. It's not just at the pastoral level that we need leaders. It's leaders at all levels, all levels. And you know, in, in Peter, in his first letter, he's talking to the elders and the pastors. And, and this is what he says to them. He says, man, thank you for leading. Thank you for laying down your life in service for the kingdom. And then he says to them, let your motivation never be money. Let your motivation for leadership never be money. And then he says this, but rather you should desire to be an example to everyone of Jesus. And that's the kind of leaders we need. We need servant leaders. We need servant leaders who will set us an example of what it means to be all in with Jesus and following Jesus. So my time of leading us as a family is coming to an end. 
Um, And God's going to bring us another lead elder pastor at some point. But the health of our family, and I don't mean immediately, I'm just saying it's coming to an end. I'm getting old. I told Earl I'm an old man. He said, Jimmy, I'm an old man. I said, well, we're both old men. You're just an older man. You're just an older, older man than me. But, uh, but the health of our church family has never rested on my leadership in this role that I've had. And it's not going to, in the, the health of our family is not going to rest on whoever follows me at some point in the future as our lead elder pastor. The strength of our family for the future will be found in many of you rising up and being leaders in our church in ministry and service, setting the example for us, taking the lead. Taking the lead. God is calling many of us to servant leadership. So equip yourself. Avail yourself to be that leader. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check us out on YouTube and Facebook to get to know us and see what God is doing here in Surrey. Be blessed. Be blessed.